right. Good evening, everyone. While we wait for that to come up, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 7, we're going to be in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 tonight. Hey, there we go. So this is the PowerPoint short tonight. You'll all be glad, I'm sure. Um, Revelation 7. Here we have the question, which, uh, as stated, reads, Revelation 7. 144,000 servants of God who have been sealed by God in their foreheads are clearly from the tribes of Israel, excluding Dan, are named again in chapter 14 in greater detail. Uh, They sing a song unique to them. They must be men and are called virgins. They follow Jesus. They are redeemed um, in a special way. Uh, we'll, We'll get to that when we read. And they seem very holy, almost perfect with no guile and have no fault. Here's the question part. Are they a special creation? And where do they come from in the tribulation since the rapture has already happened? So here we have uh, we have a question at the end, which we will address a lot of these statements. uh, So I hate to disappoint if if there was a a willingness to have an open conversation, we'll have to do so in private and at probably at great length about all these preclusory statements to the question. Um, So I'm going to address them just shortly and by saying it's possible um, that as many things in Revelation are, that this 144,000 number is figurative and possibly not as literal as it may seem. Uh, for instance, people who are being redeemed of the earth, as we'll read in chapter 14, um, are completely perfect. They have no guile. They follow the Lamb wheresoever he goes. Is that uh, what we understand of human nature, that every man is, perf- is perfect and without guile? I don't believe so. so. However, as we're looked at through the Father in Christ, how do we look? Perfect and without guile. We're accepted. So I think that maybe um, including a literal and figurative um, interpretation of this passage is appropriate, but that needs to happen at greater length, and that's not tonight. (laughs) So what we are going to address, we can go to the, the next one. Uh, What we are going to address, are they a special creation, and where do they come from? Uh, Okay, so, it's working. Revelation chapter 7, we're just going to read. And after these things, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor anyone, uh, I'm sorry, nor on the sea, nor any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having a seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice of the four angels who were <clears throat> to whom it was given uh, to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So there is an impending wrath, we could say, coming. But these, uh, from the previous chapters, uh, they're addressing these uh, horses or horsemen, as it were, who are now uh, charged with uh, doing damage to the earth and and executing some sort of wrath. Um, But they're saying, hold off, we have to seal some people. And so they go on to seal 12,000 out of the tribes that are listed here, and excluded is Dan. Um, Let's go down to uh, verse... Sorry, I lost it. Right, here, nine. And I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all the nations and kindreds of the people and tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, 
and palms in their hands and crying with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God. Now, this might be a familiar scene because it happened once before, but it was just prior to the crucifixion of Christ. People with palms in their hands shouting, Hosanna, or salvation to our God. Uh, and to our, which sit is upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And the, all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Blessed, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor to, <clears throat> and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And, no, and one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? So here we have our question, where do they come from? And we're going to find the answer just by reading. Uh, and I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. So here's our answer. Where they come from? They came from out of that great tribulation period. So... We see that there, the great multitude that's mentioned here <clears throat> uh, in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 4, uh, chapter 7 still, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and were sealed in 144,000 of the tribe of Judah. It goes through all the tribes. And I cried with a loud voice, saying, um, sorry. There we go. Ch uh, verse 9, and this I beheld, lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. This is potentially, if we're talking about the same group of people, he says 144,000, and then he also says an innumerable amount of people, which leads me to that previous statement. Maybe a literal and figurative interpretation would be best to look at this. But again, so where did they come from? And the first part of the question, are they a special creation? Uh, let's read chapter 14 now in Revelation. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers singing with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before, and before the four beasts, and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. Again, referring to where they came from um are the are these are they which were not defiled with women for they are virgins these are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth these were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto god and the lamb so are they a special creation i think we find our answer in verse four these are redeemed from among men they're not a new and different creation they are redeemed from among men these were people these were human beings just like we are but as we learned from the other part of the question, where did they come from? They came from, uh, yeah, there we go. We only restated the question a couple of times. Uh, they came from out of that tribulation period. So that's the short answer to this question in a uh, potentially hot topic of debate that we could go through. But again, don't have time to. So that's it. Good evening. Um, <clears throat> my question comes from 1 Corinthians 15, so you could turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. And 
if you don't mind, I just mentioned a quick prayer request. Um, uh, one of Jessica's distant family members was basically given a very short period of time to live due to having terminal cancer. So uh, the, the the lady, her name is Maribel, and her part of the family, it's over on Jessica's dad's side. She's not real close to, we're not real close to her. Jessica had only met her a few times, but um, they planned a, like a just last minute family reunion type thing. So Jessica went there today and was just, just getting back as I was leaving. But um, she had the opportunity to share the gospel with her and um, and to talk to some of the others there as well. So just pray. It's Maribel and uh, Rolando. I don't know if Diaz is the last name. But anyways, they're uh, Jessica's dad's cousins. He's got a big family on that side. And they're predominantly Catholic. So um, Jessica just, there were lots of people there to talk to her and things like that. But she had a short time and um, was able to share the gospel with her and seemed to have a positive response. She may know the Lord. We're not really sure. Um, Okay, my question is from 1 Corinthians 15. And um, it's uh, a popular question, I think. It's kind of a confusing verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says this, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And the question has a few different parts to it, but it's just, I think, basically questioning that whole thought there, the baptism for the dead. And it says, the question, just so I can read it, in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, it mentions and questions, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? The question is, why are they baptized for the dead? Uh, The Mormons practice this. Um, What is the explanation of this verse? Philip's translation reads, baptism for the dead by proxy. Uh, And the New English Bible reads, those who receive baptism on behalf of the dead. And why should they do this? Okay, so I think in summary, it's just questioning kind of the thought that's in this verse. So what does it mean? Uh, My answer in short is, I'm sorry to say, I don't know. I don't think we really know exactly for sure what he's referring to. But I think we can understand enough from the passage and the context to be comfortable uh, and to have any curiosities about whether this was a biblical practice satisfied. So um, one question I think you would naturally come to is, well, is it a biblical practice? I don't think that this is a biblical practice, okay? I, I, I think if you take it in the context, what is the context of the verse? Well, the context is that Paul is just defending the resurrection. In general, he's defending the resurrection. Or that is to say, he's just defending that there's life after death, simply put. Paul's saying there's life after death, And yet he says in verse uh, uh, 12, if you look back at verse 12 for context sake, he says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So first we get the context in mind. Uh, uh, Paul, there are some in in the Corinthian church that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Okay. Paul's defending that there is a resurrection from the dead. And he uses a few different things, a few different arguments, you could say, uh, to to, uh, prove that there is a resurrection from the dead, that there is life after death. Okay, 
So that's the context of it. I mean, obviously, we have to understand that in order to understand uh, perhaps what he's saying. So verse 29 again says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? I mean, my first statement would be is we don't find anything in the New Testament scriptures teaching a practice like being baptized for the dead. Um, there's no other that I know of. There's no other support. And Paul doesn't give any explanation here. It's just assumed that the people in Corinth know what he's talking about. Some have said that there are like 30 different possibilities that that different Bible teachers have raised as to what this could mean. So again, my answer in short is I don't know exactly what it means. But the, the most the one that makes the most sense to me and what it's always made perfect sense to me really is that uh, Paul is referring to something that was being done in their culture. They knew what it was because he doesn't explain it. More than likely that there was a, a pagan or a religious practice to be baptized for the dead. And so he's simply using the thought, the idea to prove to them or to stimulate their thinking to say, look, why are why are they baptized for the dead if there is no resurrection, if there is no life after death? He's saying there is life after death. There is life after death. And in fact, I think he's just pointing to something that's cultural to them, something that's in their, uh, again, maybe a, maybe a pagan practice, maybe a religious practice and saying, uh, why would they do this? You notice the, the, the personal pronoun used, right? He says, why do they do this? He doesn't say, why do we do it? He doesn't even say, why do you do it? He says, why do they do it? That, to me, is a good indicator that he's referring to someone other than the Corinthian church or to he himself and his apostles. In fact, if you read the next verse, he changes the personal pronoun the very next verse, he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do we? Why are, why are we apostles putting our life on the line? It's just another argument. Why are we putting our life on the line if there's no life after death? But my point is that he changes from they to we. So I think that the they indicates um, that he's talking about someone other than the Corinthian church and someone other than he and the apostles. So it just leads me to believe, and, and I think many have taken this view, that there must have been some cultural practice, some pagan practice, some religious practice that people in that area were doing uh, in this baptism for the dead. And he's just saying, look, even the people around you, even they in your culture baptized for the dead, why? His point is simple. There is life after death. I certainly don't think he's endorsing it. He doesn't give very, ex very much explanation. He doesn't commend it. So <clears throat> I just give an illustration, okay? This is just an illustration that came to mind as I was thinking about this, and um, it's pretty, pretty basic. Um, suppose that, that dad goes up. It's bedtime, and dad there at home, he goes upstairs and He's got his kids there lying in their beds, and um, it's time to sleep. And, and they're laying there peacefully, but he notices that uh, there's something different about them. It seems like there, there may be, um, 
they look a little bit guilty, like maybe they've done something. And as he's thinking about this, he looks over there, and, and on the floor there's a candy wrapper. He goes to pick up the candy wrapper, looks into the closet, and sees there in the corner of the closet there's a whole pile of candy wrappers. And so he turns to the kids and he says, well, um, what is this? What, what, what are you doing? And suppose one of the kids says, well, we didn't know that that was wrong. We didn't know that was wrong. And I, we had no reason to believe that that was wrong. You know, we ate candy. The dad could say to them, yes, you know, it's wrong. These are the family rules. Uh, you certainly knew it's wrong. He could just go on with the fact that, th- you know, it's wrong. It's part of our family rules and so forth. Or he might say something like this. If you didn't think it was wrong, why then did you hide the candy wrappers over in the corner of the closet? He's not endorsing the fact that they hid the candy wrappers. He's not teaching them to hide the candy wrappers. He's just using it to prove the point that they did know it was wrong. Okay, so I think Paul's why question is is just that he's just using it to validate, to support the fact that there is life after death. Okay, and Paul does something similar to this, similar in Acts 17, when he appeals to something that's extra biblical, something that's outside of the scriptures in order to argue a biblical point. He says, you know, even your own prophets say that we are his offspring. He appeals to pagan prophets that those people in that culture were aware of. And he just does it to show them to to stimulate their thinking, to say, look, even your own prophets say that we are his offspring. So that's he's arguing something different there. But the point is, he uses something extra biblical uh, to stimulate their thinking. So that makes perfect sense to me. Having said that, there are lots of other possibilities. Again, I. I don't know exactly, and honestly, I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is his point. His point is that there is life after death. That's what he's arguing. So as to exactly what he's referring to, as long as we know it's not biblical and he's not endorsing it, whatever the practice was, we may not know exactly. I don't think we can know exactly, but I think he was just using it to stimulate their thinking to say, yes, there is life after death. Look, even those in your culture... Why would they baptize for the dead if there is no life after death? Okay? Any questions or comments or thoughts since that's been our custom to do this here? That's the best I've got. Yes, Rex. Right. Otherwise, Christ didn't rise from the grave. We're dead in our sins still. Right. That's yep. I think what he's doing is he's essentially writing to the group of believers that are there who are denying that there was a resurrection from the dead, saying, "Then why did you get baptized? What you did was pointless. The symbol that you you partook in is completely pointless because there's no resurrection from the dead. Meaning he was buried and then rose again. We have that symbol because of water. Right."
Yeah, it's possible, right? And in the, I think in part of that question said in the Mormon religion, something mm-hmm. similar is practiced. There's a state, there's a little cliche that I've heard over the years that might be helpful. Uh, a text uh, out of context makes a pretext. So when and that that happens in a lot of religions, they take a text that's out of context and they give it their own a pretext. Right. They, they build a doctrine or a religion on it. Right. And and I think what you what you what we pointed out here is he's using it in the flow of argument for resurrection. That's right. It's certainly part of his argument as to what exactly it is. Yeah. It's certainly part of his argument that there's life after death, that there's a a resurrection. And of course it'd be very dangerous to build a whole doctrine on one verse like that, where again, you know he's using it because he uses other questions. You know he's using it um, for to argue his point that there's a resurrection and life after death. J-Man. Yeah, that's one of the other, yeah. I've, right. Did everyone hear what Jason said? That it's possible that some of the believers there were baptized for Christians who had been martyred or had just died by natural causes. It's possible that they went and were baptized on their behalf. Again, I don't see that taught in Scripture, but maybe they did. I, I, don't, I don't know. Right. And that's what the Mormon church does. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Sam. Okay. Good evening once again. All right. The question I had was, as stated... How can one person's death cover the sins of the whole world? Especially since we see in the Old Testament that the law demands a life for a life. Uh, Just basic understanding uh, from the question as stated, uh, I believe what they're asking is, since the law says a life for a life, how can one life cover many lives? So should there be a death for each life is my assumption from the way it's stated. Uh, referencing the Old Testament life for life. Um, well, let's look at the law. Um, there's four instances. I looked up just that term, life for life, uh, throughout the scripture. And I just want to bring out four, four instances of that term. Uh, three are actually from the law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Law. And one is just an instance. So First uh, Kings 20, uh, we have the account of Ahab and Ben-Hadad. They were warring with each other. And uh, Ahab was, through the prophet, was given the command to utterly destroy Ben-Hadad. <clears throat> and I'll just read the verse 20, uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 42. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. This was an unnamed prophet that came to Ahab 
after he let Ben-Hadad go. They actually made agreement. He said, yeah, you can come sell in my marketplace. He's making an agreement with a man that the Lord said, you will utterly destroy. So here we see an act of disobedience, and the Lord passes judgment and a penalty, your life for his life. That's one instance that's outside of a thou shalt, thou shalt not law. Three instances for the law. Deuteronomy chapter 19. I'll just read it. If a false witness arises rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both the men in the, in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So here you have an instance of someone coming and saying, yeah, that law where we have, uh, where it's really bad and you get stoned, well, I saw this guy do it, so you should do that. Well, someone's bringing a, a false witness. If they find out that he's lying, that he didn't actually see him, the text says, then he should be stoned. Life for life. Premeditated wrong, that's the, the, what I wrote that as. He's a false witness. So there's a penalty for an action, and that's where it's life for life. Premeditated murder, Leviticus 24:17. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Life for life. Numbers 35:31. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. If you're guilty of death, according to the law, you deserve death. Life for life. And then this is the key one that I think um, where generally everyone references possibly. Um, Exodus 21, verses 20 through through 25. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according, accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, and wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Again, we see a penalty for an action. And this is two men fighting. If they happen to jostle a woman and she prematurely gave birth and that baby died, he deserves death. So what we see here is four instances, one in, one in just the historical account, three of the law that deserves life for life. But that's all a penalty for an action. So I don't think that we can use, uh, especially since we see in the Old Testament that the law demands life for life to, to um, justify, answer questions about how can one person's death cover the sins of the whole world. So I think we can put that aside. That doesn't apply here. So now we come to the question, how can one person's death cover the sins of the whole world? Just there. Uh, let's look at the characteristics of the sacrifices given in the Old Testament. Uh, in Leviticus, you'll see over and over uh, and specifically in chapter 4, without blemish. The term is without blemish, not a single spot. The animal is not sick. It's healthy. It's in the first year. It was carefully watched for four days before it was brought. That's the Old Testament, the perfect unblemished lamb. And that's what God approved as an acceptable sacrifice. So Exodus 12:5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Obviously, they used other animals as well, bulls, goats, but specifically here, the lamb. And he was watched from the 10th to the 14th, four days. Compare that with 
the perfect unblemished lamb of God in the New Testament. <clears throat> John one twenty nine. the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ was unblemished. We know that from Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the use of a negative to emphasize the positive. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. If you took the negatives out, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is sinless, spotless, perfect, unblemished. So we see the Old Testament perfect lamb, the New Testament perfect lamb of God. So he was perfect. And that comes to how we can apply one death to the sins of many. Romans 5.15, But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The one to the many. Just as the Son of Man, Matthew 20.28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. One to many. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, one for the many. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Again, one to many. Okay, so Christ is unique. There's been no one like him. He makes a claim that no one has ever claimed. He claims, I died for the world. John 3.16, we know this. He died for the world. It distinguishes him from anyone and everything. Hebrews 10:17 through 18. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. So again, to address the question, if there's no longer a necessity for the offering of sin, it's been removed once and forever, that was the sacrifice, Christ, once for all. So he, as stated, the question says, how can the death of one man cover? Well, it doesn't cover, it erases it's gone forever. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions, right? Um, again, Hebrews 4.15. He is a high priest without sin. He was perfect. That's why he was able to, to be the perfect sacrifice. There's a sense of value there. How can the, val- the death of one man cover the, uh, the sins of many? He's not just man. He's God. He's perfect. If I went to buy a car and the man says, okay, that'll be $25,000, and I start counting up Monopoly 500s, he'll tell me to take a long walk off a short pier, right? Like, what are you doing? There's no value in your money. I want real money. Give me a check. Give me a bank check. There has to be equal value of what you're giving for what you're getting. Well, Christ is beyond value. Christ is sinless, unblemished, the perfect Lamb of God, and his value is without measure. And so he's able to fully meet the requirement of the wrath of God meant for the sins of all people past, present, and future. So the one can die for the many. And it's not just because he's a man. He was the perfect sinless lamb of God. That's, that's what I have. Any, any questions, additions, subtractions?
No, very good. The just for the unjust. Wow, that he might bring us to God. So there's only one that was called just. He the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. What a what a profound truth. Maybe I'll call upon uh, brother uh, sister Nancy if she could to come play. We're going to play um, one, just a couple of verses here of number five. 45, search me, just, just the first and last verse, search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. Thy word declares, Thou wilt supply our needs 
for a blessing now, O oh Lord, I humbly plead. Just the first and the last verse in number 545. Father, my God, we are thankful for the Word of God. What direction would we have without it? Why, we'd be as lost as the world around us. Our Father, we we do give you thanks that there's truth there, something that escapes the minds and hearts of the world around us. There's structure. There's knowledge of you, God our Father, as been given by your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. We are thankful, our Father. We just give you thanks for each uh, person who has made their way out this evening. Pray your blessing upon them. Give us journeying mercies as we go now. And it's in the Lord Jesus Christ's precious name we do pray. Amen.